Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hey, everyone. I hope this message, this episode finds everyone safe and healthy and um, 
coping and navigating with uh, the world that we find ourselves in, in in 2020. It's It's been a unique one so far. And um, I am really, really excited. We have a, a special treat today. Um, we are going to uh, hear a very, very unique perspective, a uh, perspective of a true servant leader, one of the, the greatest leaders of, uh, of American military history. And um, I'm really excited about that because we are going to talk about a whole range of really important topics uh, that are timely and uh, are are really relevant to uh, all of us and, and to what we're going through at this at this present moment. And so we've got a lot to talk about. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce our special guest, General David L. Golfing, retired from the U.S. Air Force on October 1st, 2020, after over 40 years of military service. General Golfing's last assignment was as the 21st Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force. As Chief, he served as the Senior Uniformed Air Force Officer responsible for the organization, training, and equipping of over 685,000 active duty, guard, reserve, and civilian forces serving in the United States and overseas. As a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Golfing served as a military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, National Security Council, and the President. General Golfing received his commission from the U.S. Air Force Academy in 1983. He is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Weapons School and is a command pilot with more than 4,200 flying hours in various aircraft, including the F-16 and the F-117. He has flown combat missions in operations Desert Storm, Allied Force, and Enduring Freedom. General Golfing comes from a long line of military service. His grandfather served in World War I with the U.S. Navy, and his father was a colonel in the Air Force and fought in the Vietnam War. His two brothers and his daughter also served or are currently serving in the Air Force. Prior to serving as the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, General Golfing commanded U.S. Air Force's Central Command, Al-Udeed Air Base, the 49th Fighter Wing, 52nd Fighter Wing, the 366th Operations Group, and the 555th Fighter Squadron, the famed Triple Nickel. Golfing flew combat missions in the F-16 during Operation Desert Storm, and as commander of the 555th Fighter Squadron, he led the Triple Nickel flying an F-16 in Operation Allied Force. In Operation Allied Force, NATO pilots attacked targets in Serbia to force Serbian dictator Slobodan Milosevic, who had led an ethnic cleansing campaign against Kosovar Albanians, to withdraw his troops from Kosovo. The first phase of the air campaign focused on taking out Serbian air defenses. During one of those missions, on May 2, 1999, Golfin's F-16 was shot down over western Serbia by a surface-to-air missile fired by the Yugoslav Air Force. Golfin successfully ejected and was subsequently rescued by NATO helicopters. Please help me welcome a great leader, great American hero, and a great human who I am proud to call a friend, General Dave Golfi. Hey, Dave. Hey, Ron. How you doing? How's it going? <laughs> it's good to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. I wish, you know, if um, if if I did your true bio, it, it would be the whole episode. It would be whole, the whole hour-long episode. So I'm a uh, um, we, we gave a very abbreviated version of that, but but thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know everybody has got a lot of questions, and uh, and uh, I think this is going to be a, a really good um, conversation. So thank you. 
Well, I, I just after after listening to that, I want to sign you up to do my eulogy some someday. <laughs> well, I'll be long gone before then, so I, I don't know if that's possible. But um, hey, just to get started, yeah. um, you know, we've known each other for thirty plus years, um, and in all that time, uh, your only call sign that that I ever remember was fingers. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I I hear that you have a call sign change now. Now that you retire, and you just retired like four days ago. I don't know. It was about seven days yeah. ago. Right. And yeah. uh, after 40 plus years of, of military service. So, so before we get into that, thank you for all that you've done for our nation and for the world uh, with, with, throughout that service. And, uh, and so fingers, what happened there? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so my new call sign is Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really enjoying that. My other call sign, actually the most important call sign I've ever received in my entire life is Papa. Ah, there is, you go. Uh, yep. Grandpa to my two, granddaughters and we have two more on the way so that that is uh that's job one right now in chapter two but you know the call sign fingers it came actually when you and i were in the uh in the 17th tech fighter squadron together uh back during uh ww desert storm yeah if you remember when we went to uh aldafra uh, i was placed in charge of the uh setting up the bus route to get us around the base yeah and I had, we had leased a bus that had one of those accordion doors. Oh, I do remember this now. <laughs> do you remember that uh, I, one particular senior officer put his hand on the door and I crushed his fingers <laughs> in the accordion door? And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, you earn your nickname and that's what I got. If I remember correctly, that was the senior military leader in, uh, in our detachment there. Correct. <laughs> Great call. Yeah, so it wasn't in a typical uh, famous name, the new guy night. Um, so. Right. <laughs> right. So uh, what, can we just start by talking about, um, you know, the highlights of your career, the 40 plus uh, year career. Um, you've been, you know, in combat and in, in, in multiple theaters. Um, and, you know, I know that there's a lot of lessons that, that you've learned throughout that those, those decades. And I know that you're really... Um, uh, generous in sharing with uh, sharing those lessons that, that you've learned along the way. And so, um, and, and particularly, you know, a lot of folks that, that are listening uh, are going through um, a crisis, right? There's, there's crises all around us right now. And uh, it's leadership during times of crises that you have demonstrated so well. Uh, and I was wondering if there's any, any um, examples of that that you could share with us. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I've got a fundamental philosophy that I've, uh, you know, that I've learned over the years, uh, learned from others. Um, one of my mentors, great mentors, uh, General Mike Ryan, uh, who was, uh, I served with him when he was a three-star and I learned a ton. And one of the things that uh, I believe is that every challenge in life that we're handed has an opportunity. It's, it's embedded there. Sometimes the crisis of the moment, it's hard to see it at the time, but it's the leader's job to find the opportunity in every challenge. And so there are some crises, I would say, some challenges that we're facing, uh, COVID, not the least of them. Uh, but in that challenge is some incredible opportunity. Um, I think we have learned, we've all learned that there are different ways of doing business that are very effective. This podcast, you know, just as one example, um, we found that we can gather together and do work that doesn't require us to all be together in one location uh, like we've done in the past. But I will tell you that uh, in terms of, you know, the many experiences that I've had, and I've 
be happy to dive into this if you'd like to. But, you know, you mentioned in the opening that I've got, you know, I've got this odd number of takeoffs and landings. Yeah. And I sit here today uh, because of some young men at the time, because women weren't in special operations. From some young men who you know risked everything to come get me and bring me home. And you know, you never know as a leader when a subordinate is going to risk everything to pull you out of a burning truck, a bad, you know, a bad situation, you know, enemy territory, you name it. Yeah, and these guys risked everything uh, to come get me out. It gives you a level of humility that I think is so important as a leader. Um, because you know, when we find the opportunity and every challenge we're given, bringing a tone, a, a bit of humility to the table, I think is as important as any other characteristic we bring. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, <laughs> I also have uh, an odd number of takeoffs and landings. So I've, I've got more takeoffs and landings. We have, that's one of the main things we have in common. But my rescue was by a big burly guy in a, in a bakery delivery truck. So I had a, I had a, different, <laughs> I had a, a different rescue on mine. But, um, I mean, if we, can we talk about that just a little bit? Because I think one of the, challenge, you know, one of the main challenges you faced through your career was, was that day or that evening that night um, where you were shot down and, um, and the, and the, you know, it, it obviously all worked out um, for the best, but I, I heard, and, and part of that story is I heard that you met the person who actually shot you down. Is that, is that true? No, I haven't. Uh, oh, okay. He is, uh, he's in uh, Serbia. Actually, I don't uh, know his name off the top. It's interesting though. Um, uh, same guy who got me, got the 117. It's actually the same individual, same battery. Uh, he was a bit of the MacGyver of the Serbian military. Uh, he would rewire his systems uh, and was obviously good at his trade to get to be the, you know, one guy who got two uh, aircraft. So I have not met him. Um, you know, I uh, they have parts of the airplane in my G suit and some other parts, uh, you know, in a, in a museum, I'm told in Belgrade. I've, you know, I, have, I haven't gone to, to see it or meet him. And I have nothing against doing that. I just haven't had to really haven't had the opportunity. Yeah. So is there any lessons learned that you can share from the, the experience and the challenge? I think more, you know, I use, I, I, I use the experience I have used in the past. Now that my new call sign is Dave, um, I have used the experience in the past to, to provide, you know, leadership lessons. And there are a ton in there. We talked a little bit about, uh, humility. Um, I think there's also a lesson here in um, in taking care of those who are entrusted to our care. You know, leaders, and this goes beyond just the Air Force. Leaders, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of challenges, and uh, most of the issues we deal with or work with are tough, and they ought to be tough or we probably ought not be spending our time on them. And when, uh, when, when it's all said and done and it's time to make that key decision on which way you take the organization, it really all comes down to fundamentally your character. It's the foundation of success in any role uh, that anyone, that any one of us take on because uh, 
when you're in that final decisive moment, it's a combination of your core instincts, it's your core beliefs, and it's the sum total of your experiences that add up best decisions for the organization. So uh, I, again, I've, I've been able to use that experience for, uh, for a lot of good leadership lessons along the way. Awesome. Uh, I want to remind everybody, I, I see you all popping in and, and joining from all around. So join join the conversation, uh, be an active participant here, uh, send your comments, send your questions, and uh, we'll try and address them as best we can. Um, so General Goldfink, you, uh, you, you've you faced Just a lot paid. of challenges. <laughs> General Dave, uh, you fa <laughs> you've faced a lot of, uh, of challenges uh, throughout your career. Um, most recently is your time as the Air Force Chief of Staff. And there was a number of crises that occurred. You know, obviously you were there when, when COVID started. Uh, you were there uh, when George, the George Floyd incident happened and we had, you know, racial unrest throughout the country. And uh, I, I know that you've taken those uh, head on. And is there anything that we could talk about uh, with those? You know, it might be worth, I think, talking a little bit about sort of how we handled, how Chief Wright and I uh, and uh, handled the initial days after the tragic uh, killing of Mr. Floyd. Um, certainly a national tragedy that, that, that released a lot of frustration across the nation. And the nation did what our nation does you know, when it's faced with something like that, that unjust action, it, uh, it gathered together to, to uh, demonstrate part of who we are. It takes us all the way back to the beginning of our history. And so Chief Wright and I decided that um, in every challenge, an opportunity, and the opportunity that was being presented to us was, the, was this opportunity to have uh, tough, uncomfortable conversations that help move the service in a way that we all know it needs to move and we have been moving, but would allow us to accelerate that movement uh, towards a institution that's the gold standard for inclusiveness, belonging and diversity, because it's not just about diversity. It's just not about, you know, having, uh, you know, a diverse group with different backgrounds. It's more than that. It's does an airman of all backgrounds, uh, religious, you know, racial, sexual orientation, do they feel like the organization embraces them and they are included as part of a valued member of this team? Uh, do they feel a sense of belonging? And so, you know, we, we began this difficult, but very important conversation between, you know, this African-American leader grew up, came from a very poor background. If you know Chief Wright's story, it's just, it's the American dream story. It's a success story. It comes out of a very poor family. Um, you know, his entire family, you know, living in a, you know, a two room apartment um, and you know, several generations. And then he grows up to be the senior enlisted leader of the entire United States Air Force. His life experiences are, are vastly different than yours and mine. I mean, every room you and I walk into is full of us. 
every system we've ever dealt with to include our promotion system, our uh, assignment system have been essentially built by folks like us for folks like us. And so if you begin the conversation with this acknowledgement that, you know, you and I bring different life experiences than Khalith Wright, that different bring different experiences than, than um, uh, Marianne Miller uh, or uh, Jackie Van Ovos, the four-star general in charge of Air Mobility Command. If we start the conversation understanding that we have different life experiences, then it gets us to a better level that we can actually really attack the root of the challenges we face as we go forward. And I will tell you, <clears throat> I couldn't be prouder of uh, General CQ Brown and uh, Chief Bass who have taken it even to the next level now across the Air Force because we're the big tent service and we gotta be the best in the business when it comes to inclusiveness, belonging and diversity. Yeah, when when you were getting ready to retire, I was uh, I was really worried about uh, whose hands the Air Force would be in, and I was so thrilled that our mutual friend C.Q. Brown uh, was selected to to take over the Air Force. I think uh, we we are in very very good hands with C.Q. What a great leader, great pilot, um, and uh, and uh, you know another F sixteen guy, so that can't be bad. So, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your leadership through those difficult times. Uh, obviously, we're still in them. Uh, di di our diversity is what gives us strength, strength in problem solving, strength in, in, in everything that we're trying to do. Um, and, you know, it's not we don't want a, you know, a completely homogenous uh, solution uh, of, of problem solving force. You know, we need, mm -hmm. we need diversity, diversity of, of perspectives, diversity across the board in, in, in every way. And uh, thank you for your leadership on that and setting setting example, frankly, of, uh, for that. Uh, the other issue that, that I touched on. And again, I'm going to remind everybody, jump in this conversation, send us your comments and questions uh, is COVID-19. And. Can you speak to uh, the, the virus's effect on our, our military readiness and, and how, how the armed forces are, are dealing with, uh, with that crisis? Yeah, you know, I tell you, I couldn't be prouder of how the Air Force and the, all the services really and, and our international teammates have handled uh, themselves. We, we determined very early that there were certain missions that we would not get relief on regardless of what happened in the pandemic. And this was very early. You know, the nation was gonna require its Air Force to maintain two thirds of the nuclear triad and a safe, secure nuclear deterrent to get the president where he needs to be when he needs to be there and connected to forces. And there would be no relief on that mission regardless of COVID or anything else that may come our way. Um, the nation was gonna require us to continue to operate globally with global reach to, to deliver supplies, personnel, you know, where it needs to be. I mean, we're a global power because of global reach. The nation was gonna require us to continue space operations regardless of. So we identified key mission sets from which we would get no relief and reset those, those mission sets to be able to maintain our operational tempo with no degradation. And we we're very successful. Uh, once we, and we call that reset one. Reset number two, uh, once we got those missions set, was to acknowledge that we were probably in about 12 months of at least uh, in this situation. And so 
how do we sustain operations and do the nation's business if we are living with a cyclical virus in our midst? And we're seeing that happen right now as it sort of, you know, tailors down and comes back and comes down and comes back up again. So, uh, so we did that second reset to make sure that we could continue to keep pipeline training going, basic military training, all those things that, uh, again, the service relies on to be able to sustain combat operations and peacetime operations in a global air force. So the, you know, probably one of the things that, uh, that I'm, I'm most proud of, you know, we, we had pushed for several years to push decision authority down the chain and, and where it really has the most impact, which is at that squadron commander level. And our squadron commander cadre across the Air Force just knocked it out of the park. I mean, they took, you know, our, our, our little mantra was, don't wait for me, <laughs> right? Get, get, get out there, you know, uh, take risks, stumble, you know, if you need to, you know, get up, keep running. Uh, this is too big an issue for you to wait for top-down guidance on everything. So our squadron commanders, group and wing commanders just took off. And I think if you look at the success of the Air Force during this time frame, uh, I hope as history looks back, the success will be at that squadron commander level where the rubber reaches meets the road. Well, spe speaking of that leadership, let me pop this up here. Um, I don't know if you can read this, but uh, when leaders make clear mistakes, how should those moments uh, and situations uh, be handled? So, yeah. yeah, so it, you know, it depends obviously on uh, a number of factors, right? Uh, what level of leadership are we talking about? Um, and uh, what particular kind of mistake we're talking about? I don't, I don't think I could give you a one size fits all. I will tell you that I tended to, to um, celebrate success in public and deal with failure in private wherever I could. Um, now, I'll give you one exception to that. There are times when um, standards are attacked and someone falls below standard and it presents an opportunity to reset the bar for the entire organization. The example I would give you would be flight discipline. You know, I, I was never a safety first guy. I mean, if you want to do safety first then just stop flying. Um, I was a discipline first guy. And when there was a breakdown in discipline, that is one that I generally handled in public. And it was not, uh, it was certainly not comfortable for the individual who fell short, but there's an opportunity to reset the bar for the organization in terms of what the standard is for uh, baseline foundational work uh, of the organization. Uh, one quick example, we had a, you know, we had a crew that did a barrel roll in an MC-12, which is an experimental aircraft. Um, you know, we had not ever tested this airplane it was designed to fly, you know, at, in level flight with no more than 30 degrees of bank. We had a lot of gear in the back end that we had, we had put together for a specific mission in Iraq and Afghanistan. And quite frankly, nobody could tell us what, how that op aircraft would operate in aerobatic flight. And uh, we had a crew that uh, went out there and did some barrel rolls and some things and that, uh, and it got, I got wind of it 
and we we took care of that in public. So that's the one example I would give you where um, where sometimes you don't have to do things privately because of the good of the institution. Right. But the baseline of praise um, publicly and uh, discipline privately, I know from my own uh, observation of your leadership style doesn't apply to yourself. To yourself, uh, I, I've seen time and time again where you publicly admit uh, when you have made mistakes along the way. And uh, I think that's that's a good example of leadership as well. Um, so I want to pop up another comment here from Rhiannon. Uh, amazing conversation. Thank you both for your dedication to creating a more inclusive, diverse, sustainable, and peaceful future for humanity. Uh, I think that's a good, that comment is a good segue to uh, women in combat. Uh, we've had a big change uh, back when you and I were flying in Desert Storm. We, we had uh, no women fighter pilots. Um, there were women there in theater with us, but none, none of them uh, in... Uh, I was going to say none crossing the border in aircraft, but that's not true. None, none as a fighter pilot. So let's put it that way. Um, how do you see the evolution of uh, women in combat over the last few decades, uh, and where do you see it going? You know, I mean, this this one to me was an absolute no brainer. You know, we we actually took too long, in my personal opinion, to get to the right place. Um, you know, good news is a service. You know, when we when we open combat all combat positions to women, you know, for the for the, of the services, we had the least number of positions that we had to open because we had opened so many uh, already. Um, you know, women have been serving in combat for far longer than they ever get recognized, and many, you know, I don't know that many know. There's a couple of books uh, written by women who have served, you know, on um, provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan, um, women who have served as uh, in special operations, uh, you know, working with you know, other women in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places around the world. I mean, you could take this all the way back to the WASPs uh, and, and, you know, women have served absolutely brilliantly in combat operations. And the way I see it, you know, every Memorial Day, and I tend to continue to do this, and I go to Arlington, and I go to Area 60, and I, I spend time visiting families there, but I especially spend time visiting the airmen that I lost. As well, I think we might have lost the general. Somebody, uh, if you're watching, uh, let me know if uh, if we've lost him up. Oh, I think we got him back. Hold on one second. Oops. Hi, Dave. You still there? Okay, we lost you for a second. You were talking. We lost you right when you started talking about Arlington. Yeah. So I was just saying that you know when you when you go to Arlington, you know you have men and women buried side by side. Combat doesn't discriminate. We exactly. should. We shouldn't either. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a story from our past is uh, when our friend Bill Andrews got shot down on the last day of Desert Storm. Uh, there's a number of helicopters that went in an attempt to rescue him. Uh, it was an unsuccessful attempt. Uh, and a Black Hawk, Hawk was shot down. And in, in that Black Hawk was Major Ronda Cornum, yeah. uh, 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 Army Special Forces uh, doctor. Um, and uh, she she ended up uh, in the same prison as Bill Andrews in, in Baghdad, and uh, uh, an incredible story of, of bravery yep. and uh, resilience. Um, 
So um, I think we got everybody back online too. That's that's good. I see you starting to pop back in. Um, what about uh, maybe just to shift gears just a little bit um, and and jump in if there's any if there's any topics that you that you want to uh, touch on. But one that I think I know that uh, a lot of people want to hear about is the is the formation of Space Force. Um, so. Uh, the Air Force Space Command obviously was under your command, um, and that was that was spun off and uh, into a separate force uh, as during your tenure as the Air Force Chief of Staff. So can we can we talk about that for a second and, and what that means for our future? You know, I was on my own personal journey on the Space Force. You know, you can go back to look at my initial testimony, and um, my big worry at the beginning was that that we were going to in the business in the in the effort to build a separate service we would separate space from the joint war fight and because everything i was focused on as chief was joint war fight aligned with joint war fighting excellence i was really worried that we would start stepping back from much of the integration work that we have done over many years to the point where today you know a mission commander at red flag uh, that walks up on that stage uh, can be a space warrior and everybody reports to him or her and, uh, and that's how we do business. So I was a little bit worried that we were going to lose a bit of that, uh, going forward. And then I traveled to Maxwell air force Base for a session with our Shriver scholars. And, uh, this is about 25, 30 majors, Lieutenant colonels who are there to get to essentially a sort of almost a PhD level, uh, in uh, space operations. And I was talking about the Space Force and uh, and I can tell from the body language that they weren't buying what I was selling. So I asked them, I said, hey, so tell me, how many of you all think that we should have a separate service? And every one of their hands went up. And I thought, okay, they're, they're, these are my airmen and they're telling their chief, uh, speaking truth to power here, I gotta, so we started digging into it. That was a seminal, moment and it changed for me because then I started, I started reading, uh, I was reading a lot. I was listening podcasts, talking to industry leaders. And I fun, I came to a, a fundamental question that, which was in all the work that I was doing as chief, spanning the, the spectrum of conflict from leaflets to nukes and everything in between, and from, you know, operating below the surface to outer reaches of space. Could I harness the exponential growth in commercial space opportunities and all the things going on internationally with everything else I was having to take care of? Or would a separate chief focused singularly on space operations be able to do that? And I came to the conclusion on my own that uh, Chief Raymond was going to be able to do this uh, far better and far faster than I could do it with everything else I was focused on. And we're a spacefaring nation. And, you know, when I hosted the first uh, International Air Chief Conference on space, and I was listening to countries, and every air chief that attended was telling me about their investment in satellite development, in launch capabilities. And so, uh, so I became a believer. And once I became a believer on my own, uh, I got behind it. And I truly believe that the president got this one right, that a separate service focused on space 
a digital service that can start from the beginning and build uh, what doesn't need to be a large service uh, based on you know space operations that is that that stays within the Department of the Air Force actually will accelerate our capabilities faster than if we'd kept it under uh, the Air Force. So I I uh, I think and and I will tell you I give the team General Raymond. Uh, Chief Toberman, um, now is uh, Vice uh, John Shaw. I give them a lot of credit for where they've taken it. So um, I got a note that came in that said uh, that that General Goldfine lost his sound. So I think it's back now. But if you guys, uh, somebody could just confirm that that we're actually hearing this. But um, in the meantime. What do you what do you say to folks that say it's just a, another layer of bureaucracy that we have enough bureaucracy in our in our Department of Defense and that it's duplication of effort and um, so so I guess if I if I can interpret what you've already said is that the the focus that you can have by having a singular chief uh, on, you know focusing on space operations over overshadows the increase in bureaucracy that comes from separating out of service. Well, something we got to keep an eye on, you know, uh, the, <laughs> there's this old saying that, you know, when a new organization in the Pentagon, uh, pops up, it does, uh, three things immediately. The first thing it does is build a castle. The second thing it does is dig a moat. And the third thing it does is fill the moat with dragons. Yeah. Uh, right. Because you got to defend yourself from those doggone folks who are coming after your money. That's the sort of the typical, you know, bureaucratic uh, way of business. Um, and then someone has to come by much later and, re and build bridges between the organization that's defending itself. We started off focused on building this team within the Department of the Air Force, focused on a foundation of trust and confidence uh, between our two services. If that can continue, and I'm confident it absolutely will under Chief Raymond and Chief Brown, um, then we won't fall victim to the trap of, you know, castles, moats, and dragons. Um, but I will tell you, uh, that's not something we can uh, take off the radar. We're going to have to stay focused on that. You know, we, you and I grew up in the United States Air Force, and, you know, there's, a, there's always a thread of tension between airmen and soldiers in the Army that doesn't exist between the other services. And I, I think it goes back to how we were pulled apart back in 1947. And that just sort of, that sort of continues through time, right? Um, I often tell the story of my two granddaughters, you know, who, uh, who, who are members, they don't know this yet, but they're members of the class of 2040 at the Air Force Academy. <laughs> and one of them is going to join the Air Force and one of them is going to join the Space Force. They don't know that either. <laughs> I'll, I'll let them choose. But on that day when they graduate and they walk across that stage, um, the class of 2020 will be graded. And that's us. That's you. That's me. It's everybody today who are building this new service. And the question will be, what did we build? Did we build a service? focused on trust and confidence, one team, not, not layers of bureaucracy that moves fast, that's relevant to the leadership of the nation 
when it comes to air and space operations? Or do we allow this to become a bureaucratic divisive split? So far today, uh, I'm, I'm confident that we are on absolutely the right path, but we cannot let our guard down. Yeah. You know, another question that I get concerning uh, the separation of, of uh, separate space forces on the out of space treaties that we've signed um, about weapon proliferation uh, in space. Um, how, how, how do you answer those questions? And what are your thoughts on that? You know, we uh, I often like to remind folks that uh, two things. Number one, um, nobody wins if a war extends or starts in space. Every war game I was part of, uh, when that occurred, everyone loses. Nobody came out the winner. That's number one. And number two, we have to be the nation that collaborates while others may choose to coerce. We cannot fall into the trap of being coercive when it comes to space operations. Because again, I go back to you know fundamental premise number one, nobody wins if we end up in that in that place. Well, if you're going to effectively deter, you know, military operations in and from space, then it's like any other domain. You have to have the capability to not only defend yourself, but you have to uh, have the capability to ensure that the that the um, protagonist um, who is considering military operations in space understands that you have the capability of stopping that and defending yourself. So uh, it's always a little bit of a uh, dichotomy because, you know, on the one hand, uh, you can't just sit back in the wing in the ring and take punches. You have to have the capability of punching back, but your in, our intent has to be collaborative. Space has got to be available for all of us uh, to include the Chinese, to include the Russians, to include the Iranians, to include all of those that today, you know, might be in an, in an adversarial uh, relationship. We've seen those relationships change over time. And so uh, I'm hopeful that we can always maintain the moral high ground when it comes to the militarization of space and be collaborative and uh, and let others be coercive. That's a, that's a great point. And uh, I mean, maybe to drive home everybody, the everybody loses scenario is right now one of the biggest problems we have with space exploration is space junk and in, in low earth orbit and, and just in orbit in general. And, you know, if we if we start shooting each other's satellites down, that's I guess that's the wrong way to say it because they don't come down. If we start blowing each other's satellites up, then we will, in effect, basically lock every living thing on the planet on Earth. We won't be able to get off the planet because we won't be able to get through the space junk. And maybe to drive that point home, while I was during my six month mission on the space station, uh, we got a call that said uh, that a piece of space junk was heading our way. Normally, you know, we. You, you know better than I how much we track everything uh, on orbit. For whatever reason, we didn't get enough warning to be able to move the orbit of the space station. So what we had to do is me and my two Russian crewmates, uh, and we broke it, our crew of six broke into, into two crews of three. And we all closed every single hatch on the space station. And then me and my two Russian crewmates climbed into our Soyuz spacecraft and, and closed the hatch. And 
my other uh, American uh, crewmate, Mike Fossum, and his Russian crewmate and his Japanese crewmate climbed into their, into their Soyuz uh, capsule and closed the hatch. And we just waited there. And we made it by about 15 minutes. We had about 15 minutes to sit, to, to float in the, in the Soyuz and just wait. Uh, and what ended up happening, and we got a report that they thought it was a spent upper stage. I don't know where it came from, but it was a, so imagine uh, a something the size of a grain silo coming at us at about 15 times faster than a bullet. Yeah. And uh, it missed us by 300 meters. Uh, so it had that hit us, it would it would have completely obliterated the, uh, the space station. And so that's without any war in space that we've got all this stuff up there. And so we would, we would rapidly in, encapsulate ourselves uh, into, in, into the earth right now. Um, so I, I, thanks for all the comments about how the audio is good, uh, but that's also proof that you're out there listening. So, <laughs> so jump in here with comments and questions. Um, so Dave, I mean, we're, we're at a pivotal point in history, I think right now we're, we're at a, at a really uh, critical uh, crossroads. Um, how do you see, from your perspective as, as a, a, a national leader, uh, as a military leader, uh, as a recently retired, <laughs> retired grandpa, uh, how do you see uh, this present moment in history and, and what, are your, what are your thoughts for the future? Yeah, there's probably a few areas to, to uh, dive into. And uh, just so the audience knows, uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, mention anything that would uh, uh, be political given the election coming up. And, and it, I will tell you that I, I my personal belief is my own personal belief is that, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I forget who it was that said it uh, says, you know, when you retire, when you retire your uniform, retire your mouth when it comes to you know, uh, uh, political opinions. Um, and I do that out of respect for those who are con currently serving as well, to remain apolitical. So I'm not going to go into that part. But. There's uh, there's a few areas uh, that we can talk to. I mean, I think that uh, um, climate change uh, is a real issue that that we need to have a national and international level discussion on that um, that we owe to that we owe to future generations. Um, you know, we built an Arctic strategy uh, in the Air Force. That now, uh, you know, Chief Brown and uh, and Secretary Barrett are, you know, working in terms of execution. I'm one that believes that in in international relationships, uh, there tend to be three elements. There's ideals, affections, and interests. Ideals are those things that you just never back away from because they're foundational to who what we believe: life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. There are affections, which are those relationships we build that are of trust and confidence that we can tap into when needed. And then there are interests, which is when in common interests align. Of those three, the one that's the, the, the most important that will eat the other two for lunch is interests. So think about what you just described with you and your Russian teammates. So here we are in an I would say pretty much an adversarial relationship on the ground with Russia where we don't really align, but yet somehow in this complex relationship, we found a way to maintain common interests above the atmosphere, even though we can't agree on much below. Such is the nature of complex relationships. And I do believe that there are those, there are opportunities out there um, for us to lead um, 
in the international community given the number of challenges that we face that are global. So therefore uh, others face them. We talked a little bit about COVID. Um, I was really excited about uh, an, a, a channel uh, among air chiefs that was opened, uh, initiated by the Italian air chief, who was one of the first to face uh, COVID, if you remember in North Italy. Um, and, uh, and we had it had up well over a hundred air chiefs that were all together, all talking about how we were dealing with this global pandemic and how we were modifying airplanes, how we were, how we were contributing to, uh, supporting each other as the various numbers went up and down across the globe. Um, and so I, I do believe that there's opportunities for collaboration. Uh, even even given the you know enormous challenges that we face, and this is uh, this is an opportunity for America to lead, and uh, so many around the world expect us to do just that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because the problems that we I, mean, I I think it's really really obvious that the problems we face are are not just national by nature or regional by nature; they're planetary by nature. We we face existential planetary crisis. Um, and the only way we're going to solve them is by coming together as a planetary civilization, as a planetary society. And uh, I think you brought up a really good point about uh, one of the ways we do that is by finding the low hanging fruit, finding the things that we agree on. Um, and the space program, I think, is a, is a really good example of that. I, you know, I was up there for six months with Russians, with Italians, with Japanese, with, you know, with different people from different backgrounds and nationalities. And I don't remember a single time in six months ever having a conversation that had anything to do with politics. Hmm. And it wasn't because it was off limits. It was because it was irrelevant. That's what those people down there deal with. And and from space, all these things that we fight over and, and quarrel over and that seem so important make us look ridiculous from space. Because from space, you see the true reality that you know, we're all not only deeply interconnected, but deeply interdependent on each other. Uh, and so when one part of the planetary family is is hurting, we're all hurting. And uh, we just don't realize that, that we, we, we set up these advertation, uh, advert, what's the word I'm looking for? Adversarial. Adversarial. Thank you, General. Uh, uh, relationships when they don't need, need to be that way. And that, that's a good point because, you know, the, the U.S. military and the Air Force uh, are our military force, right? They, they are um, what a nation um, employs um, in those cases where uh, combat is, is um, the option that is appropriate. But uh, I know that you've been involved a lot in peace building, too, in uh, trying to make that unnecessary. And can you, can you maybe talk about that and, and um, you know, the, the long-term view of how of, uh, of uh, maintaining peace throughout the world? You know, one of the things that I think that uh, we uh, should always consider when we're in discussions and building relationships around the world is, is that, you know, we're, we're the 800 pound gorilla. I mean, we, when we, when we, when we stop into the room, I mean, we're bringing a, uh, you know, a, uh, whether you want to measure it in GDP, whether you want to measure it in, um, in defense investment, uh, you know, if we're talking military, uh, space operations, I mean, we, we, we roll in with a sometimes by several orders of magnitude above whatever other nation that we're dealing with. And it's so easy for us to, to just stomp around like Goliath if we're not careful. Um, 
but when, when we bring a little humility and 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 the understanding that perhaps we have as much to learn as we have to teach it opens new doors for us you know for instance you know as we as we ponder uh you know our relationships in the far east the middle east europe you know south america no one understands the culture of those locations better than those who live there and we have so much to learn when it comes to how you know someone from colombia or japan or qatar you know or kazakhstan you know views a particular problem and if we're open uh, to listen and we're uh, just you know uh, appropriately humble to be able to learn from them we will come out with far better uh, options for you know leaders to consider you know I'm one of my favorite authors and who's become a good friend Simon Sinek you know mm-hmm. who uh, who wrote start with why and a number of other great books you know it's it's I think it's important when we talk about diversity belonging and inclusion and international relations because they are tied together of going back to his premise. All right, so why? Why why is this so important? It's so important because the the challenges we face are wicked hard. And the solutions that are there because every challenge in life has an opportunity. The solutions will be far better if we come together as a diverse team with different backgrounds and perspectives both internationally and from our individual backgrounds to attack that, uh, to attack that problem. I saw it just as, as a joint chief, you know, when, when we would, when we would meet in the tank and the chairman would convene us and we were looking at what kind of advice we would provide the commander in chief, our advice was so much better when all the cultures in that room participated and so much worse when it was only one or two services you know, providing that perspective. So, you know, a little start with why is never a, is never bad and a little humility is always good. Right. I think we are not going to progress as a species without uh, a big dose of humility right now. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We experienced the same exact thing in the space program, you know, back in the, in the nineties, when we were considering bringing the Russians into the international space station program, politically, that was a, there was a big food fight about that, you know, uh, why would we do anything with the Russians uh, while they're doing X, Y, and Z? Until they stop doing X, Y, and Z, we shouldn't do anything with them. And that's, that is the normal course of business, right? If you agree on something, then you use that as a stick to force the things that you, that you don't agree on. Um, but what we chose to do in this case is luckily those voices didn't win out. We elected to, to bring the, the Russians into the space station program. And initially it was exactly like you just described. You know, NASA came in, you know, we landed on the moon. We got this beautiful, capable space shuttle. You, you know, you guys are, 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 don't have any funding for your, your program. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, you have no, no capabilities that, that uh, uh, we want to incorporate. Uh, and the Russians were saying, you guys don't know anything about space stations. You're just coming here and trying to buy out our space program. But after we started working together and, and personal relationships developed, we realized it was an incredible amount that we could learn from each other. And the relationship became very, very strong. And uh, to the point where, you know, back when we had the Columbia uh, mishap, the accident and 
catastrophe, uh, we would have had to shut down the space station had it not been for the partnership with the Russians. And so right. uh, it's a really good example of uh, finding that low hanging fruit, that common ground and using that as a jump off point to then start to address the things that you that you don't agree on, but you're doing it from a foundation of friendship, um, hopefully a foundation of trust. Um, and I think that's been proven again and again to be very powerful. So I got a, a, a note from Jessica. Why do you think that the interests on the ground overtake the amazing feat of cooperation or collaboration in space? Yeah, Jessica, I don't think they're in competition. Uh, really and truly, it was just, it was more of an example of how in complex international relations, you can actually find common interests in one area where you may dis completely disagree on a vast number of others. And as long as you're continuing to talk uh, and, and both sides are searching for common interest, then uh, they, are, they are there to find. That's the opportunity and the challenge. You know, I mean, uh, so we've had this continual uh, dialogue through the scientific side of the house that maintains this relationship in space between the US and Russia. Um, you know, I, I wonder, I ponder what would our relationship look like today if we had invited the Chinese into the space station when we invited the Russians in? Because um, we certainly could use an avenue of uh, dialogue, whether that through the scientific realm or another realm uh, as we go forward, even though there was a number of issues that clearly uh, we don't agree on, such as the nature of complex relations. So Jessica, it really wasn't a uh, either or, it was just an example of how in a complex set of relationships, interests always uh, went out and we can find common interests with, uh, we can find some common interests with just about every country on the planet. Well, you know, speaking of the Chinese, because the same arguments, the same political fighting, food fight that w went on back in the 90s when the Russians were going to come on, that same, that same thing happened when we were talking about bringing the Chinese in. And in this case, those voices did win out. And you know, the Chinese are going to do amazing things in space with or without us. And, but if we if they do them with us, you know, going back to your comment about Simon Sinek, um, we're going to have a better insight into the why. Uh, and and again, that could be a foundation um, to, to move to bigger things. Um, so uh, Keith Gowing, soft power can be more potent, potent than military power. Um, I, I, I think that's really an obvious uh, comment when you think of things in the long term, uh, it, you know it may not be as obvious in the short term, but in the long term, about long term peace um, and harmony and everything else, I think that's that's uh, pretty true. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I mean, the military power, absent a political and economic framework for operations, um, is rarely effective. So you always have to think of this. You know, hard power in terms of what it is that you're truly trying to achieve and what political objectives are you trying to achieve and what's the economic framework within which you're operating when when as a joint chief for him as a retired now uh, general officer i would contemplate uh, offering the commander-in-chief a military option but to the comment about you know soft power being you know, more lasting, more, uh, um, you know, more compelling. Um, absolutely. You know, it's probably worth talking for a minute about, 
you know, this concept of, you know, best military advice or, you know, how do, how do we offer advice? You know, when you become a three-star general or for certainly a four-star, you, you, you testify before in a hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee. There's a series of questions that the chairman asks. And one of those questions is, you know, do you agree to provide your personal opinion uh, to this committee, even if it differs from the current administration? And if you're and the only answer to that, of course, is I will. I so so as a confirmed three and four star, we have an obligation to give our advice to, to civilian leaders. Not one civilian leader I've ever worked with or for has ever had a, a similar uh, responsibility to take our advice. And so that's an important nuance that we have to remember at all, all times, right? Uh, you know, the perspective of the military officer coming to the table is generally going to be narrower uh, than the leader that we're advising. So take a look at, you know, the commander in chief. When I thought of national security and responsibility of the Air Force, there are a few things that I was thinking about, right? Critical infrastructure, um, you know, key cities, uh, Operation Noble Eagle, uh, you know, cruise missile defense, those kind of things. But you know what I didn't worry about, Ron? I didn't worry about Wall Street. Wasn't in my job jar. Didn't mm -hmm. worry about uh, ports didn't worry about Amtrak, didn't worry about the futures uh, trading that was going on. I didn't worry about any of that. I didn't worry about the, uh, the, the ships that move goods and supplies up and down the Mississippi. I mean, point being that there are a lot of things that were not on my radar. Mm -hmm. The civilian leader that I'm advising has got to fit that military option into a much broader uh, perspective and then make a informed choice on whether to use military power or not. So it all goes down to the point of soft power being, uh, yes, far more effective. There are times when military power is effective, but it has to be within an economic and political framework. Well, Dave, I, I hope there comes a time where, where it's part of your job jar to be worried about all those things. And I know you didn't want to talk about politics, but if you, <laughs> if you ever, if you ever throw your hat in that ring, uh, I'd like to I'd like to help any way I can because I, I think you are a true American hero, a great leader, a servant leader, probably the one of the best, if not the best, chief of staff of the United States Air Force we have ever had in the in the history of the, of the Air Force. And so um, again, I just want to I want to thank you for everything that you've done for our country, for everything that you've done for the world. We're, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to continue it offline for everybody who's watching, and we'll try and make that available to everybody. But uh, Dave, I just want to say thank you so much for, for not only being here, but for everything that you've done. Hey, thank you, Ron. And if uh, I know we're in a time block, but if I could uh, share one quick story with listeners. You bet. You bet. So, so there I was, the three star in uh, Qatar, uh, sitting there in my hooch with uh, my deputy and who was uh, who was uh, Reverend Jones and uh, and and Todd Walters. Yes. And a phone rings and uh, I pick it up and the operator says, we have a uh, phone call from the International Space Station. Will you take it? And so, of course, I said, well, not collect. <laughs> uh, and uh, and sure enough, uh, you know, calling from the International Space Station is astronaut Ronnie Guerin. And uh, I remember having this conversation with uh, the just the four of us, you know, 
you and you you had said, "Hey, I'm flying over Qatar. I was thinking about you. Just wanted to call and check in." And when we hung up the phone, I thought, you know, what an incredible American success story, right? So here we are, four guys, you know, who, who as captains were one step ahead of the law, you know, at Nellis Air Force Base, and now we're running the International Space Station in the Air War, you know, in the Middle East, uh, only in America. So thank you for your service and leadership. Uh, agent over many, many years, uh, and uh, you inspire all of us. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate that. And when we were running around, I've known you since we were captains, but I've, I've known CQ since we were lieutenants. Mm. So the Air Force is in good hands with, with CQ. Amen. Man. All Amen. right. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, we'll see you next week, and uh, stay tuned. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective, and thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. <laughs>